Well, hello again. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to John chapter 5. Uh, excited to continue to, to work through that book together uh, as a church. Uh, and as you are uh, turning there, back uh, a little over uh, four years ago, or a little less than four years ago, in December of uh, 2015, uh, there was a, a tenured professor of political science at Wheaton College, uh, whose name was uh, Larisha Hawkins, uh, who uh, decided to, to wear a, uh, a Muslim hijab during the month of December uh, to, sh- to show support for her Muslim neighbors. Uh, and uh, the professor was soon uh, placed on administrative leave, uh, not because she wore the, the hijab, uh, but because of her explanation as to uh, why she was wearing this traditional uh, Muslim head covering, uh, and on a post on Facebook uh, at that time, she wrote that she stands in religious solidarity with uh, Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. Uh, and she said, as as the Pope, as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. And as you can naturally imagine, this. Uh, created a little bit of a controversy. Uh, and uh, when someone on social media criticized her explanation uh, and pointed out how it was in conflict with an, an orthodox view of Christianity, she gave this response. Uh, again, on social media, she says, a, a holy kiss to you who, who disavowed the idea that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And she says, I love you, peace, and respect. Uh, And and in another post, uh, she continued to defend her previous statements. She said this, whether or not you find this position, speaking of her belief that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. She said this position is one held for centuries by countless Christians. She says she points to church fathers, saints, and regular Christian folk like herself. She says, this is uh, to be valid. She says, I trust that we can peacefully disagree on theological points and affirm others like the triune God, uh, the virgin birth, uh, and the resurrection. Uh, let there be unity in our diversity of views uh, about all of the above. Uh, and so, so Wheaton College w- was suddenly in quite the predicament uh, at the end of 2015 uh, and at the beginning of 2016. Uh, they had a, a professor uh, who was, you know, kind of coming out and, and presenting views that were uh, outside of what they believed. Uh, and then you had college students who loved and cared for uh, this professor. And so there are actually protests on the, the campus of Wheaton College uh, asking the administration not to, to fire her. They're asking to reinstate her because she got placed on administrative leave. Uh, and uh, ultimately, the, the administration uh, stood firm and, and upheld their... Uh, their statement of faith, uh, and they they released uh, Dr. Hawkins from employment there. Uh, and, uh, and just to clarify, those three doctrines that she mentioned at the end of that, that last quote, uh, she pointed to the, the, the triunity of God, the virgin birth, and the resurrection. She kind of holds those up as, hey, we can, we can have disagreements uh, about these things. Uh, but, but the reality is, and ultimately why the, the administration decided to, to part ways, is if you change any one of those doctrines, uh, you come to a different faith. If you, if you change our view of uh, God, if you, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you end up with a different faith. If you take away the virgin birth, you end up with a different Savior and uh, a different Jesus. If you take away the resurrection, then really Christianity crumbles. The Apostle Paul even talks about that. Without the resurrection, we are just, we are fools and most to be pitied. And uh, so she points to these things as if we can uh, just change or reject any of them uh, and still have uh, a Christian faith. Uh, and, and I bring up that event because you might have, have found yourself in a, a similar situation where, where somebody that you are around kind of makes this big theological statement. Oh, we all just worship the same God, uh, and all religions are, are generally the same. Uh, and is that true? Is that the, the case? Uh, how should we respond to somebody who, who makes uh, such uh, assertions. And, and there are many people and there are many other religions that are happy to try and attach themselves to Christianity uh, and to the God of the Bible. 
Uh, they're, they're happy to, to jump on the bandwagon, so to speak. Uh, and uh, many will say uh, that Jews, Muslims, and Christians all worship the same God. But again, is that really the case? And here's another question for you, I guess. Uh, do all who identify as Christians worship the same God? A little thought-provoking there. Question of, hey, do, do Catholics, liberal Protestants, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, ev- and evangelicals all believe in the same God? Now, all of those groups would identify as Christians, right? Uh, but they all have a different understanding about who God really is. Uh, and so, as I've said at the very beginning of our study of John's Gospel, uh, John wants us to come to a conclusion about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and he wants us to believe in him for our salvation. And sometimes we just emphasize that, well, you just need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And yes, that is true. But we must believe in the Jesus of Scripture, not a Jesus of our own making, right? Rather than, hey, this is Jesus, my imaginary friend. This is what I believe about him. That's not what we're called to. We're called to believe in the Christ of Scripture, the Christ who is the Son of God, sent here by God the Father to pay the penalty for sin and redeem a people for himself. And so uh, within all of those different groups that I mentioned, uh, each one of them is going to have a a view of who God is and who Christ is. And the question then is, which one is correct? Right? Because they can't all be correct. They can all be wrong, but they cannot all be correct. (laughs) Either one is correct or they are all wrong. Those are really the options uh, on the table. Uh, And... uh, As I said, there are certain fundamental doctrines, uh, primary doctrines, or first-order doctrines, that if you change those doctrines, you come up with a different religion. You come up with a different faith. There are other secondary matters that we can disagree on uh, within Christianity and and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. And those are things that pertain to how we live the Christian life, not necessarily what makes us Christians. Uh, And all of those items that I mentioned uh, earlier and that she really... uh, pointed to of the uh, the triunity of God, the virgin birth, or the resurrection. Those are among the, the foundational items. Another one is, who is Jesus? Uh, and that is really going to be the, the focus of, uh, of our study today. As we're, as we're looking at John chapter 5, where we're picking things up back in the middle of where we have been. So uh, I, I hope that you are there. And as we look at John chapter 5, we, ha- we have to understand that most of the, the entire argument of John's gospel either stands or falls whether or not we accept and believe what Jesus is going to say in our passage today. Right? Much of the gospel uh, depends upon this passage, uh, upon what Jesus says about himself. Uh, and all of John chapter 5 is really one big uh, scene. It's intended to be taken together. Uh, and as we have seen in, in past weeks, it takes on uh, the, the flavor of a courtroom drama. Uh, and it's intended to be a legal case brought forth for, really for our deliberation uh, as we hear all of the facts and then come to a conclusion. And the first uh, paragraph of uh, John chapter 5, really from verse 1 through halfway through verse 9, uh, is going to be uh, the, the supposed crime that Jesus commits, that he heals a man on the Sabbath. Uh, and in the next paragraph, uh, halfway through verse 9 all the way through uh, verse 15, uh, is going to be, in essence, the, the investigation of that crime and the controversy that, uh, that results. See, Jesus healed a man, uh, and then uh, he told the man, hey, take up your bed and, and walk. But it was on the, the Sabbath, the Jewish holy day, where they're not supposed to do any walking. And so when the Pharisees see this man who was healed and say, hey, what are you doing? He said, hey, the man who healed me told me to get up and walk. I said, okay, we've got to look into all of this. Uh, and then if you look with me at verses 16 through 18, which is what we, we studied last week, uh, this is going to show that the charges that the Jewish leaders are going to bring against Jesus. Verse 16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, meaning healing, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, And from verse 17 through the end of the chapter, uh, 
is really Jesus making his defense. And the summary of his entire defense is stated in verse 17. It says, hey, God the Father is working and I'm working also. And that's why he's able to break the Sabbath. But at the same time as he makes that statement, what is he also saying? It's the conclusion that the Jews come to in verse 18. That he's saying that Jesus is working because his Father is working, is claiming to be equal to God. That's going to create some controversy. And as we look this morning in verses 19 through 23, Jesus is going to present his defense against their accusations of Sabbath breaking and blasphemy. He's going to dive a little bit deeper into what he means by his explanation of, of verse 17. And because if Jesus is, is really making this claim, as, it, as the Jews conclude, if he's really saying that he is the Son of God, then he's claiming to be equal with God. This, this is of the utmost importance for us to see and understand, right? Because again, if, if Jesus is true in this claim, then he's worthy of our worship. But if what he's saying here is false, then, then we don't even need to gather here. Then there's no point in, in following a deluded man. Right? Again, everything in our faith depends upon whether or not Jesus is the Son of God as he is claiming here. And if he's not, then yeah, he is guilty of blasphemy. But if he is, there's very serious implications for us as well. And he must be worshipped. <clears throat> and as we look at this this morning, we will see that indeed he is the Son of God. He is equal with God the Father and worthy of honor, worship, and praise. And I know this morning is going to be a little bit of a theology lesson, but don't begin to tune me out. Some of you may be doing like a full body shudder. He said theology. It's going to be high and lofty and over my head, but I believe that sound theology should also impact our everyday lives as well. And that if we really understand theology, we should immediately see, oh, then this, is, this needs to change in my life, and I need to live this way in response to this truth. And that's what I hope to do this morning. Uh, and, and this is all important because first and foremost, each and every one of you needs to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. You need to, to wrestle with, do I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you convinced of that truth? Do you really believe that he is the Son of God, equal with God, and worthy of your complete allegiance and worship? The personal decision that you have to, to wrestle with and come to. Secondly, this is also important because you need to really be convinced of that truth. If you're really going to live for Jesus, you need to be convinced first and foremost of who he is. Again, if Jesus is just a man, there's nothing I can say or do to convince you to go and die for him. And as we looked at last week, when Jesus began to say that he was the son of God, what's the, the response of the Jewish leaders? Okay, he needs to die. That, that, that they began to seek to kill him as soon as he made that assertion. So as we talked about last week, if we're going to identify with him and agree with him that he is the Son of God, what can we expect from the world around us? That same hostility. So we need to really wrestle with what do we believe about Jesus. And then third, if we are following him, we need to really know him. And we need to know what the Bible teaches about him so that we can easily identify uh, all of those other and wrong views of who Jesus is. Right, if we're going to be able to identify false teaching, we need to know what is true, first and foremost. And the big question looking at today is really what we're, what we're answering is, why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Which is a fair question to, to wrestle with and answer. Is Jesus worthy of our adoration and our praise. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see four ways that, that Jesus, as the Son of God, is equal with God the Father. And each of those four ways that he's equal is going to have an implication to it. It's going to accompany it, and it's going to inform and hopefully impact the way that we live and the way that we worship. So look with me, read with me verses 19 through 23. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all 
that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And uh, actually, I have slides with the points uh, on them today, which I think is going to be important because they're long points. All right. And I ever try to take down what somebody said and you're like, what was that? What did he say? So uh, I wrote them down uh, for you. And so we'll know if we can have them uh, on the slide. Sorry. Zach. Can we thank Zach for all that he does and our sound team? Uh, I know we, we appreciate you. <clears throat> Uh, spur of the moment, uh, asking you to do that. Uh, you might be able to control it on your phone. Uh, it may be easier, but, uh, alright, let's, let's look at this first way that Jesus is equal with God. And it's seen in verses 19, uh, and 20. Now that Jesus' equality with God the Father in works teaches us about unity and submission. If you look back at those verses 19 and, and 20, that Jesus is going to, to present us with a, some tightly packed logic here. Yeah, he's going he's to explain a theological truth and then why it is significant. And he begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, which is simply, hey, this is really important and it is true. It's worthy of saying twice. Uh, and uh, there's a, an emphasis here, really in the Greek, it's a, there's a double negative. And it's really saying if he is not able to do nothing of himself, which in English doesn't make much sense, uh, but in Greek it's, it's emphatic. That there is nothing that Jesus does or is even able to do that is apart from God the Father. Jesus never acts on his own. He always does what the Father desires him to do. Uh, and uh, the implication here is if, uh, if Jesus only and always does what God the Father is calling him to do, uh, and the Pharisees are objecting to what Jesus is doing, what are the Pharisees really objecting to? They're really objecting to God the Father and what God the Father is willing to happen and desiring to happen. But then this question, if we're just thinking about this, arises, that if the Son does nothing of, on his own will, what is he how does he decide what to do? And then Jesus says that the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. That's what he says in the second half of verse 19. Uh, and again, if this is another implicit claim uh, by Jesus that he is God. Because he's saying whatever God does, which is a lot of things, right? Jesus is saying, the Son does also. Now, none of us can make that claim, right? Uh, but Jesus can. He says, anything God can do, the Son can do also. That is, that is what Jesus uh, is saying there. And not only that, that the Son is able to do that, but Jesus is saying that the Son does the same things as the Father, and he does them the same way that the Father does them. That they are uh, like one another, and the Son copies and imitates the Father, and they are united in purpose and in practice. But then, then the question is, if the Son sees what the Father is doing and then does uh, exactly what the Father, what he sees the Father doing, then the question may be, but is there some, are there some things that the Father does that the Son doesn't see? Right? Is there some other aspect or other realm that God operates on that's hidden away from the view of the Son? And Jesus continues in verse 20. says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And the, the emphasis there is that you, you see uh, this relationship between the Father and the Son. That you have the Son watching, seeing, observing the Father and doing everything that he sees his Father doing. And you have a loving Father showing the Son everything that he does. And you see this love relationship within the Trinity and how they are uh, working together. And as Jesus speaks in these terms, it may seem weird to our 21st century minds, but uh, to the Jews who are hearing this in the first century, this makes total sense. And I think Jesus is even uh, kind of looking back upon his own life, uh, working alongside his stepfather, 
What was the occupation of his stepfather? A carpenter. So you think of it this way. For, for most of human history, uh, if you were a son, what occupation were you going to have when you grew up? You were going to do whatever your father did. So if your father was a blacksmith, what trade were you going to learn? You're going to learn to be a blacksmith. If your father was a fisherman, what were you going to do? You're going to be a fisherman. If your father was a carpenter, you would come and you would be in the shop with your father. And you would be looking, you would be watching, observing. And then your dad would say, okay, here, here's what I want you to do. You saw me doing this, now I want you to do it as well. And I want you to follow in my footsteps. And, and everything that the father wants the son to learn, he's going to show him. And that's what we see Jesus pointing to here. The image of a loving father teaching his son and the son copying and imitating perfectly everything that the father is doing. And and that's what we see, this unity and submission within the Godhead. But then you say, well, why is that important? Because again, what what was Jesus' claim? He is equal with God the Father. And yet what does Jesus do? He willingly submits himself under the headship of God. And that's the the big truth. And that's where uh, the rubber meets the road for us as well. Because if Jesus submitted to the will of God the Father, uh, and we are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, what are we all called to do? (laughs) We're all called to submit to God in the same way that Jesus has. Uh, to follow uh, and submit in that same exact way. And Jesus lived in complete submission to God the Father, even though they are equal. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, say that same truth in these words. It says, Who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where there's so much for us to see and to learn from the submission of Jesus. Uh, And uh, if if you really read through the New Testament, what is it that we are constantly called to do as Christians? To submit ourselves to authority. First uh, Peter does a, a great job of this. It, and First Peter was written to people who were suffering, who were being persecuted by the, the Roman Empire at that time. And over the course of that letter, uh, Peter's going to write and say, hey, you need to submit, we need to submit ourselves to governing authorities. He speaks to bondservants uh, submitting to their masters, which we can kind of look at. Of, hey, we're called to submit ourselves to our bosses at work not grumbling and complaining. Uh, We're to submit ourselves to the elders uh, of the church, uh, wives to their husbands, children to parents. Submission is a way of the Christian life, and we need to see and understand that. And you can have submission with equality. And where do we see that most clearly and distinctly? Within the Trinity. That's what we see and behold here as Jesus speaks of his unity and his like-mindedness with God the Father. And we need to, to see and understand that this is what we are called to. And anytime we step out of that and understand that we are constantly tempted to do exactly what? To rebel, to go our own way. Is it fun to submit ourselves to others? And usually when we have to submit ourselves to others is when? When we disagree, right? Things can be going great at work as long as your boss does exactly what you want him to do, right? Then there's no conflict. But when your boss starts to do something that you disagree with, then, then what, what are you tempted to do? Mutiny. Uh, and, and it may not be outward, but where does it take place for sure? Inwardly. Grumbling and complaining. We must see and understand that what Christ models for us is submission with equality as well. And if you look back with me at the end of verse 20, After saying that the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, Jesus says, And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So the question is, what are those works? What is it that he's speaking about that will be greater in the future? And I think greater works by comparison is speaking about the healing that Jesus just performed, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, the man who was lame for 38 years and then Jesus healed him in an instant and he got up and walked. 
But Jesus says there are going to be even greater things that God is going to reveal. For what purpose? So that we may marvel. And there's going to be two things that he's going to point to. Two answers to that. What are these greater things uh, that will reveal Jesus to us and make us marvel? And those are going to be the next two uh, of our ways that Jesus is equal with God. And the next one is going to be seen in verse 21, that Jesus' equality with God the Father in power shows us the singularity of our hope. Because Jesus is equal to God the Father uh, in his power, it means that Jesus is our only hope. Again, look at me at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And so Jesus makes another connection between uh, himself and God the Father. Uh, And he speaks uh, at the beginning of what uh, the power the Father has. He says the Father has power over life and death. That he is able to to make alive and to raise the dead, which in the Old Testament was was not controversial at all. That's clearly taught in the pages of uh, the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32-39 says, uh, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So when Jesus says that God the Father has the power to raise the dead and make alive, that's not controversial at all. What's really controversial is the next statement. Right? What does he say next? He says, uh, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Again, now Jesus is saying that he, as the Son has the same power that's only attributed to God. Another claim to be uh, divine, another claim to be God. But it also says that, that Jesus gives life to whomever he wishes, to whomever he wills. And there's another interesting aspect of all of this. If Jesus isn't governed by anybody outside of himself, of God the Father and the Son have a a united will and a united purpose, but they don't save everyone. We see that even in earlier in this chapter, when when Jesus heals the one man at the pool of Bethesda, who else is surrounding that man? A whole bunch of other sick and paralyzed and invalid people who are seeking and wanting to be healed, but Jesus only heals one. And so we see here that... This, this aspect of Jesus has this power that only God has in making himself equal with God in power. And this, the implications of this, again, of the, this shows us where our hope should lie. That, that Jesus is the one who is able to give us life, who is able to, uh, to raise us from the dead. And the idea of if he is the one that is able to do this, then he's the one that we need to go to. He's the one that we need to go and make an appeal to for such things, right? Uh, if you guys are, are trying to get your driver's license, do you go to Trader Joe's? No, that, that's not where you go to get a driver's license, right? Uh, if you want to get a, an extension on your taxes, do you go to an auto mechanic? No. You don't. So the idea of, hey, if we're going to make an appeal for life, we need to know where to go. And you need to make the right appeal to the right person. Uh, And the right appeal is to appeal for life. And the right person for that appeal is to go to Jesus. He's the only one who can answer that appeal because he has been given that power. He has that power as the one who is equal with God. And when Jesus says that he is able to to give life, there is both a, a present element to that and a future element to that. So he gives life to us now, spiritually. Uh, the, we were dead uh, in our sin, and then Jesus makes us alive. That's what we, we saw earlier in John chapter 3, the new birth. Uh, and only Jesus is able to uh, to make that happen. Only God is able to bring about new life within an individual. Uh, and then there's also a future fulfillment, a physical resurrection from the dead. And we're going to see that next week. If you look with me at verses 25, uh, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then verses 28 and 29. 
It says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Uh, and what we see here is again that Jesus is the one who has the power to give life. And he's the one we make our appeal to. He's the one that we look to in hope. And indeed, he is our only hope uh, in life and in death. Uh, and just the implication of that is that's what we are called to do. Not, on, not just uh, one time. Yes, we do that first and foremost, acknowledging our sin before a holy God uh, and seeing and understanding that we can't bring ourselves into the presence of a holy God. That We are sinners. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Uh, and so we must have a mediator. We must have somebody to intercede for us. And Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. So now we can be reconciled to God the Father if we turn in faith to Christ. Uh, and as we, we see these things of, hey, we, we are called to look to Jesus in faith, uh, and for our salvation, uh, at a crisis moment, at a crisis event, a one-time thing, but then also as an ongoing way of life, of constantly seeing Jesus as our only hope and as our only, uh, joy and satisfaction in life. Uh, and this is what Jesus is, is saying here, that He is able to give life, uh, to whomever He wishes. Uh, and that's the, the first of these greater works that Jesus is pointing to. That he has the power to give life. Uh, and the second uh, work that he points to that's going to be greater than what was already seen. It's going to bring us to our third way that Jesus is equal with God. It's going to be in verse 22. That Jesus' equality with God the Father in authority reveals the identity of our judge. If you look at me at verse 22. Says the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So when, when Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be these greater works, the two greater works that he's pointing to are the fact that Jesus is able to give life, he has the power to give life, and the authority to judge. And those are far greater than simply healing a man. Those are things that only God is able to do. And in the Old Testament, again, God had power over life and death, and God alone had the authority to judge. Genesis 18:25, as Abraham is making his plea before God, he says this, So far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And that is precisely what God the Father is. He is the judge of all the earth. But then what we have here is Jesus saying that all authority has been entrusted to him. And this is a, a far greater claim than anything that has taken place in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament there were prophets like Elijah and Elisha who had a delegated authority to judge and a delegated power uh, to bring to life, right? They performed miracles, they, they went and proclaimed judgment. But what Jesus is saying here is altogether different and altogether greater because Jesus is saying that all judgment has been given to him. The fact that he says, the Father judges no one, but all judgment has been given. Uh, the idea that it has been given to God the Son in eternity past. That's the, the emphasis of the verb tense there uh, in the Greek. Uh, and the fact that all judgment has been given to the Son means that all judgment has been given to the Son. There are no exceptions. That Jesus is the highest, the final, the ultimate judge of all humanity. Uh, and uh, in our American legal system, we have this hierarchy of courts, right? And what's at the top? The Supreme Court. Uh, and you kind of, if, you, if you're in the lower courts and you have a, a, a case and uh, it doesn't go the way that you want it to go, what can you always do? <laughs> you can make an appeal. Say, let's kick it upstairs, right? And you keep going all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but we have to understand that there is actually a court higher than the Supreme Court. That's the court of God where Christ rules and reigns as the judge. And there is no greater court than that. There's no one else to appeal to. And there's no uh, limitations on the scope of that court's authority. Now, Jesus is the final judge of all humanity. 
all authority has been entrusted to Christ. And we will all one day have to stand before him and give an account for all that we have done. And, and this is really the flip side to the, to the previous point that we said. Of, previously it says, because Jesus is equal with God the Father, that he's, he's our singular hope. He's the one that we look to and run to because he can give us life. But here's this, this paradox. That he's the only one who can give us life, but we're also running to our judge. <laughs> he's also the one who, who will stand over us in judgment. Both of these truths urge us to run to Jesus, to place our, our faith in him, to run to him rather than from him, to look to him as both Savior and judge. Acts 17.30, as the Apostle Paul is preaching uh, in Athens, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul's saying, how do we know that Jesus is the judge that God has identified as the final judge? He points to the resurrection. That, that's proof that God has identified Jesus as the one who will judge the world. That's what we need to see and understand. The resurrection is God's authentication of all of these things. And the resurrection is proof that they are true. And all authority has been given to the Son. And these are the, the greater works that God is going to reveal in the future. In fact, that Jesus has power over life and death and he has all authority to judge. But, but these works that, that have been in, or that are greater and that will be revealed, they also have a purpose. Remember in verse 20, there was a little purpose statement. Uh, that the, these greater works were going to take place so that what? So that we would marvel. The idea that we would look and see these things and give glory and honor and praise to God. There's another so that statement, a purpose statement in verse 23. It leads us to this fourth and final way in which uh, Jesus is equal to God the Father that we see in this passage. Uh, and it's that uh, Jesus' equality with God the Father in honor demands a response of worship from us. Look with me at verse 23. Or let's, let's start in verse 22 and we'll take a running start. It says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so that the purpose of Jesus receiving this authority from God is what? That Jesus might receive honor. And not just that Jesus might receive some honor, but this honor that we are to ascribe to Jesus is, is explained to us here. What type of honor is Jesus worthy of? The same honor that we would give to God the Father. Now, if you think about that, that, that is shocking and amazing, isn't it? But again, that we are called to give Jesus honor as God the Father is worthy of honor. And there is an absolute equality in their, in their persons and in their essence. That Jesus is worthy to receive from us that same level of honor. And this honor that we are called to to show to Jesus, is connected with the, the previous two things that we just saw, his power and his authority. Think with me, in a, in a human courtroom, uh, if, you, if we were to, to walk into the courtroom, uh, and people may be, be talking and, and about the case and discussing things, uh, and then uh, we see the bailiff walk in, uh, and when the bailiff walks in, he's going to say something. He's going to say, all rise. And why is he going to call and say those words to everybody in the courtroom. Because when he says that, who's coming in? The judge. Uh, and we understand that from a, from a human perspective, that judges are deserving of what? 
honor and respect. And so if there's somebody in the courtroom when the bailiff walks in and says, all rise, uh, the honorable, and he announces who the judge is, they come in. If somebody doesn't stand when the bailiff calls that, what's going to happen? Yeah, they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be maybe held in contempt of court. Because what are they saying when they don't stand in the presence of the judge? They're communicating. They're saying something. And they're communicating disrespect. They're communicating dishonor. So again, we see judges have a particular power and authority. And what corresponds with that is an honor that we are obligated to give to them. And we're all called to stand uh, in a courtroom and show honor to a human judge. But look at me, if you, if you turn over to uh, Philippians chapter 2, I quoted a passage uh, from that chapter, but it's important to see how that passage continues. I quoted verses 6 through 8, which which teach us about how Jesus was equal with God and then didn't consider being equal with God something that he had to hold on to and cling to. That he humbled himself and became a man. speaks of he emptied himself. And really when it says that he emptied himself, that's a uh, subtraction by addition. Because when finite God takes on a human body, he's naturally going to be limited in some capacity, right? But this is the end of all of that. This is the, the goal towards that, uh, toward which that is working. Verses 9 through 11, that Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, and that's the, the beauty of all of these things, of this, this plan of the triune God. And God the Father sends God the Son to the world to save humanity. And God the Son submits to the plan of God the Father, humbling himself even to the point of death. But then what's God the Father going to do with God the Son afterwards? He's going to give him all of the honor, glory, and praise that is due his name. What is the judge going to receive one day in the future? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior to the glory of God the Father. All of that will take place. All of that is what is intended within this plan of God, our triune God. But here's one more thing to contemplate. If we turn back over to to John chapter 5. This verse, verse 23, brings a whole lot of clarity into that discussion that I started with this morning. Right? Of do Christians, Jews, and, and Muslims worship the same God? It's a fair question. And many of us may have wrestled with it or come across it at some point or another. But what this verse says reveals an answer to that. Verse 23 that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the implication, the answer to that question is a resounding no. Because you really do not honor and worship the Father unless you also honor and worship the Son. There's a, a Jewish teaching that says that the, uh, an agent is equal to the man. So if you, if you send somebody on your behalf uh, to somebody else, that that person should receive uh, your agent, your ambassador, your representative, as if it is you. And again, that's the, the whole concept of what we've seen in the Gospel of John, that God the Father sent the Son into a lost and dark and dying world. And what was the world's response? That they rejected the light. They rejected the Son. They, they kill him. 
they do not want the Father. And so they show no honor to the Son. And this truth that you cannot honor, worship, and praise God the Father if you do not honor, worship, and praise the one whom he sent. That the two are united. Uh, you can't worship one without worshiping the other. And one, uh, one pastor writes, he says, It is not up to a man to decide that he will honor the one or the other. It is either or neither. In religious circles, it's easy for unbelief to, to contemplate God, but not the Son. Knowledge of one implies knowledge of the other, and hatred of one implies hatred of the other. And denial of, one, of the one implies denial of the other. So you can't say, yes, I believe in God, but I reject Jesus. Jesus is saying that, that's not an option here. You, you must see and acknowledge and give honor and glory and worship to God the Son in the same way that you give honor and glory and worship to God the Father. So then, for those who, who do not give that honor to Christ, who do not acknowledge him as the Son of God, but only acknowledge him maybe as a, a prophet, as Islam does, uh, we can't worship the same God because we have a different conception of God. Our conception of God is tied to the deity of Christ, the Trinity. So I know that we can, we can speak in the abstract sense and, and talk about apologetics, but the, I think even the bigger question here, as we speak about worshiping and honoring the Son, is just a simple question of, do you do that? Do you honor Christ? Do you honor Him in your life? And then I would venture to say that most of you would, would answer that question, yes. You say, yes, I, I honor Christ. But then the next question, the next layer would again be, do you honor the Christ of Scripture? Do you honor the Jesus that we just described? Who is your judge? Who is your only hope? Who is equal with God? Who should be Lord over your life? Do you give him that honor? Or again, do you have a Jesus of your own making? Your invisible friend? But we're not called to do that. And if we must believe in Jesus, and believing in Jesus is just as important as what we believe about Jesus. And you must learn who he is. And you must familiarize yourself with him and know him, know what the scriptures teach about him, so that you know him in truth. And again, it's easy to identify those things that are false. There was a a survey done last year uh, by by Lifeway and, and Ligonier uh, Ministries, and they surveyed over you know three thousand Americans, and it was found uh, that fifty seven percent of Americans agree with the statement: Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Okay, so I know it's weird, strangely, but then wait a second. So again, I see some people you know, shaking their heads, and uh, others are like, "Well, what's the big deal?" So again, of Jesus isn't a created being. Jesus is eternal. He never had a beginning. And he will never have an end. But 57% of Americans say that Jesus is the first and greatest of all of God's creation. So again, there's, there's confusion here. And again, we, this is where theology is important. Theology matters. Because we need to know the truth. Because thinking that Jesus uh, is a created being, that, that changes the, the Jesus that you're worshiping changes the Jesus that you're following. And really what we're going to see is the theology that we're presented with here, when Jesus uh, says that he is equal with God the Father, is going to be the, really the foundation of all of the other statements in, in the remainder of the book. And throughout the, the rest of John's Gospel, we're going to see these I am statements. And I am in the Old Testament is the name of God. The, the timeless one, the one who is always present. He had no beginning, he had no end. He is I am. And Jesus is going to say over and over again these I am statements. And this theology is all built upon his deity. And we have to see and understand and apply that to our own lives to grasp it. And this morning we've seen these four ways in which Jesus is equal with God the Father. He's equal with God the Father in 
his works and his power, authority, and in the honor that he deserves. And these implications that we saw, that Jesus is, is equal to God, but still submits to God the Father, giving us an example to follow. That Jesus is our only hope in life, and he is our final judge, both now and in the future. And all of this points to, all of this takes place because we are called to honor and worship God the Son in the same way that we are called to honor and worship God the Father. To the exact same uh, degree. Uh, and I would uh, we'll close with this. All of this is important uh, because there are many brands of Christianity out there. Uh, and they're coming at you faster than, uh, than I can teach them all to you. Right? Uh, and so you have to, to begin to take all of this in uh, and know who you are worshiping. Okay, there's a, uh, a book that my one-year-old son has right now. It's his favorite book. Uh, it's, uh, it's called That's Not My Lion. Okay, and let me explain the premise of the book. Okay? Uh, it's a very simple board book, and on each page there's a picture of a lion. Uh, and there's some little texture for the, the one-year-old to feel and to touch. Uh, and there's little statements on each page. It says, that's not my lion. His mane is too long. Uh, or that's not my lion. His paws are too rough. Uh, or his teeth are too shiny. And then the book ends uh, in saying, that's my lion. Uh, and, and the whole premise is if you get to feel and look at these things, but you, you know which one is your lion and which one is not. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, 24. He said this. He said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You know, what we believe about Jesus is just as important as believing in him. And there are a whole bunch of competing Jesuses out there. So which one do we worship? Which one do we follow? We must know Scripture. And yes, you can, you can always send me an email, and some of you have, asking about a, a, a book or a, a ministry or a teacher. So what do you think about this? So what is, uh, but my prayer would be that each one of you grows in your own wisdom, in your own understanding, in your own relationship with Jesus. That when you, when you encounter some of these false teachings out in the world, when, when you hear them, you're so familiar with the real Jesus that you immediately say, when you hear that, you say, that's not my Jesus. That is not the Jesus of Scripture. And we all have to have that. We all have to know and worship and be able to say, I know whom I have believed in. I know who I worship the Jesus of Scripture, the one who is the Son of God, equal with God, who is my only hope in life and in death. He is my Savior, He is my Judge, and I will live to glorify Him, giving Him all the honor and praise that is due to Him.